It's so good to come together, isn't it? Um, I love, uh, uh, I think I said a couple of weeks ago that uh, there's really nothing in Scripture that says we have to have two services again on a Sunday, but I love having two services on a Sunday. You know, I love coming to God's house and being with God's people and really having that extended time because this really makes it, you know, what we call it the Lord's Day. You know, it's given over to Him to, to honor, to glorify Him. You know, and let me just say this, when you come out, whether you come out uh, Sunday morning, uh, when you come out Sunday night, it really encourages my heart. You know, it doesn't encourage my heart because you've come to hear me speak, but you've come here to honor the Lord, to, to uh, glorify Him, to praise Him, uh, to really be encouraged in the things of the Lord. And I want you to know, every time that you come out, every time, again, I see your face, I am so encouraged, you know, that you're persevering in the faith. You're really growing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that it really ministers to my heart. And it causes me, again, to go in my study again on Monday uh, morning, uh, in early Monday morning, and really dig into the scriptures. And thank you again for encouraging my heart tonight, because I realize, you know, as we look at this world, this world, again, is a hard world to live in. You know, it's full, it's full of pitfalls, it's full of, full of suffering, trials, temptations, you know, heartache that happen to begin in our life. And many times we go through such dark days and dark nights that happen to begin in our lives. I mean, we feel the sadness, we feel the grief, we feel the suffering that happens to begin around us. You know, and even as you look at other people that happen to begin around us, so, so often they'll try to numb the pain by various different things you know, various different experiences, various different drugs, or whatever it happens, various different relationships, to somehow numb that feeling, again, of sadness, of grief that happens to be in their life. But we can feel the weight of that. We can feel the weight, the pressure of living in this fallen world that happens to be around us. And I don't know if you've ever felt that. You know, have you ever felt the crush of grief that happens to be in your life, the crush of suffering? You know, and you can be in a crowded room many times, and you can be there, and you can hear the talking, you can hear the laughter, you can hear the frivolity that happens to be going on, but you can still feel all alone. You know, and sometimes you'll try to share your grief, you'll try, try to share the things that you're going through with somebody else to try and get them to understand, and they'll sort of interrupt you in the middle of that, and they'll say something, you know, about their own grief, about their own suffering, and you wonder if they've really hurt you. You know, and all of us know what it's like. All of us, again, feel that weight. And we wonder many times if we're going to make it through. You know, and the reason why I bring it all up is this is where the disciples are. This is where Jesus is talking to them. Because he tells them, again, let not your hearts be troubled. They're troubled, right? They're overcome with what Jesus has just been talking about. He's been talking about his going away. You know, and think of it, because they pinned all of their hope, all of their dreams, all of their expectations on Jesus. They saw him come. They saw him do these miracles upon miracles, lift people out of their distressful play, uh, 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 position. He gave sight again to the blind. He caused dead limbs to come back to life. You know, he fed those who happened to begin hungry. He stuck up for the disenfranchised, for those who were um, harlots, those who were drunkards, those who were sinners. And he invited them into his kingdom if they would believe on him. Certainly, this must be the Messiah. But as they thought about the grandeur of what is to come, all of a sudden, Jesus talks about his going away. You know, and what we have in chapter number 14 is the corollary truth. And that is, again, why Jesus is going away. And what he does is try to give encouragement to these disciples through various different promises. 
You know, you have to realize the genuineness of the one who happens to be giving the promise. That's why it's so encouraging, isn't it? You know, and that's what promises do. Promises that have weight, right? Promises that have substance behind it encourage our hearts. It might not change the circumstances that we find ourselves in, but encourages our hearts to persevere and keep going. I can remember when I, when I was going to uh, school and I was studying at Bob Jones University, and, and I can remember a particular time, it was our first year that happened to be again right there, and everything was brand new. There was this crushing load of um, this weight of all the uh, schoolwork that you had to get done, and, and at the same time, there was this crushing weight of financial difficulty that we happen to begin in. You know, and I can re re remember the financial officer was really patient with us, but he told us, again, if we didn't pay our bill at such and such a time of day, or such, a, such, such and such a day, that, that we'd have to be, depart. And I knew there was, there was money coming in. I knew there was a substantial amount that would help us, again, pay the bill. But it wasn't going to come in time. And I can remember the phone rang one day, and it was my sister on the phone. And she said, don't worry, Kevin. You know, I'm going to put that money in the bank at such and such a day, and everything's going to be all right. And it was incredible, because it was just like this huge, crushing weight was lifted off my shoulders. I could concentrate on my schoolwork. I could concentrate, again, on my ministry responsibilities and everything that happened to be in life. Much of my life, much of the things I had to do that day, do the next day, did not change. But that one promise from my sister you know, that had so much substance was caused me to endure and to keep going. And that's the same way with Jesus and the promises that he gives here. He says, look, I have to go away. There's a reason why I go away. And if I go to away, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go away, you're going to do mighty more works, greater works than I have ever done. If you ask anything in my name, when I go away, it will be done. Right? And I will send you another comforter. And these promises are given again to endure, aren't they? That we might persevere in the faith. That we might persevere under the struggles, under the difficulties, under the suffering, under that crushing weight that happens to begin in our life. But the question is, I mean, the Word of God, especially the New Testament, when you come and call ourselves New Testament believers, it's incredible how many promises that happen to be in the Word of God. And here's the question. How many of those promises do you know? You know, how many of those promises, when life seems to cave in on you, do you turn to? I mean, it's so easy to think of this and that and this and all these things going wrong in our life. But how often do we rehearse these promises that are given, again, for our sanctification, for our encouragement, for endurance that happens to begin in our life? You know, have you ever had people that happen to be around you and you're sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that they want you to fail in life? You know, they're coming. They seem to be aggressive in all of that. You know, in Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 5 and 6 says this, For he has said, in other words, Jesus Christ said this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, and here's a quote from the Old Testament, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. And listen to what it says, What can man do to me? If Jesus is with me, if Jesus is my helper, you know, if I have all of these people, all of these enemies, all of these opponents coming against me, the one person I want in my corner to stand for me is the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and it's a great promise, isn't it? He is there. He is with us. And I wonder how many times we turn to these precious promises when we're going through difficulties, when we're going through struggles. You know, have you ever woken up in the morning? 
you know, and you realize all the adversity that that particular day has, all of the trials, all of the suffering, all of the heartache that are encapsulated in that one day that I'm just beginning, and you utter a prayer, Lord, I just don't think I can do it today. Have you been there? And if we've been there, how often do we rehearse those precious promises that happen to be in the Word of God? Promises like 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 13. No temptation or no trial has overtaken you that is not common to man. And then here's the promise. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And you know what the promise is? When we say, I just can't do it, God promises to give the necessary grace to go through that day, go through that trials, go through that suffering, go through that agony, and truly glorify him. That's the promise that happens to me again right here. You know, and I think many times when we look at the uh, frivolity, we look at the fun, we look again at the joy of others that happen to be again around us, it can be particular trying, especially when we are going through adversity. We are going through suffering in our life. And I think a lot of times Christmas brings that up. You know, we many times talk about Christmas, right? It's the most wonderful time of the year. We all sing that song, don't we? But for a lot of people, because other people are enjoying it, it just feels like their, their problems, their difficulties are that much more greater. And so what I want us to do tonight, and just take a few moments, is I want us to look at two promises. And, and I hope you'll turn to these promises. I hope they'll fortify your heart, fortify your life, whatever you happen to be going through again tonight. And one of the promises that I find, again, so comforting, so encouraging, so strengthening is this promise that Jesus will always be with us in our trials, no matter, again, what they are no matter what we go through. And you can see that again in verses 18 and 19, again here of chapter number 14, because Jesus says these words. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Let me just stop right there. It's an incredible promise, isn't it? You know, I believe it was R.C. Sproul, and I don't know this for certain, uh, but I wrote it down anyways. I think it was R.C. Sproul who said this, after night comes the morning, or after night comes the dawn. I don't know how he, how he worded it, but I can remember him saying that. And what he meant by that, because he went on, and as our C. Sproul does, he gave a long explanation of that one statement. And what he meant by that is God has ordained the night of our life. God has ordained the trials of our life. God has not only ordained the trials and difficulties of our life, and it's amazing because when you read in the Word of God various different passages, you realize beyond a shadow of a doubt that God gets our suffering. But he doesn't leave us there. And that's what he meant, again, after the darkness comes the dawn. After the darkness comes the day. It's basically this. You know, God's ordained not only the trials, but he has ordained the morning. He has ordained to bring us through. Whatever difficulties, whatever trials, whatever suffering, whatever hard, hardship happens to begin in our life, and he'll always be with us, right? He'll always be there with us to guarantee that we come through these trials that happen to be in our life. And so I love this. You know, it's a wonderful um, a promise that happens to be again right here because he says here in verse number 18, he says, I will never leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, think about it. 
You know, many times we look at orphans, and um, I forget that, that, that movie that used to be, again, out there, again, with the orphan, and he's joined by a whole, a whole bunch of fellow orphans, and they become, again, this ragtag uh, bunch that steal, you, you know, from the, from the wealthy that happen to be, again, in England all of the uh, time. What was it? Oliver Twist. Yeah, yeah, all, Oliver Twist. You know, you, you know and, and the message is, is there, that there's no more despicable, there's no more helpless state to be in, and it's even worse in the ancient world than to be an orphan. You know, they had no say, uh, social safety net. So if you were an orphan, you, you lacked parents. You lacked that ability to provide for yourself. You lacked, again, that protection. You lacked sustenance to have in the beginning in your life. You were in a vulnerable and a very weak uh, position. And that's why even in a church, when we get, 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 get over to James, it it's, tells us that we ought to minister. We ought to visit both the widow's and the orphans, because they're in this condition, there is no more miserable condition in the ancient world than to be an orphan. You know, if you want to feel helpless, if you want to feel weak, if you want to feel vulnerable, it's in that state. And you can imagine this because Jesus, again, had been talking about going away. You know, as he talks about going away, they, they looked at Jesus as Lord. They looked at Jesus rightly as the Savior. And here he is. They felt strong around Jesus. But once you take Jesus out of the picture, they're going to feel helpless. And they're going to go through a dark night. You know, a great dark night. They're going to they're see their Lord taken from them. He's going to be taken. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be butchered. He's going to be put on that cross. He's going to be mocked. And think about it, because they placed all of their hopes. You know, here's this coming kingdom. Here's this Lord. Here's this one who has all strength. And they placed all of their confidence again in him. And all of it, I want you to realize, all of it was dashed in that moment. You know, you can imagine the grief, you know, and how vulnerable they, they felt. Here they are in an upper room, all gathered, you know, because of the fear of the Jews. You know, here are two disciples that happen to begin on the road to Emmaus. And in Luke chapter 24 and verse number 21, Jesus meets them after his resurrection, but he conceals them, who, who, um, himself to them. And this is what they say, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things ha happened. You know, all of our hopes, all of our dreams... All of our expectations have been damaged, have been shattered. And even, you know, we many times call him Doubting Thomas, but we just can't recognize the grief. He knew what crucifixion is. He knew what they did to his beloved Jesus. And when all the other disciples were celebrating, he is risen. He can't bring himself to really think, to really believe Jesus is alive. He feels bereft. He feels abandoned. He feels alone. He feels like an orphan. And here's the words of Jesus, because he knows the dark night is coming. I will not leave you abandoned. I will not leave you as orphans. 
It's an incredible, again, promise that happens to be there. In fact, even through this dark night that they would go through, all of it is working for their good, for their salvation and the glory of this great Jesus Christ. That all of the promises that are given in chapter number 14 would come to fruition. And so he promises them that he will not abandon them. He will not leave them as orphans. And then he says these words, I will come to you. I mean, it's amazing. It's right at the end of the verse. I will come to you. And it's followed up in verse number 19. And it says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, right? You will see me. That's the promise. Now, here's the question. What does he mean when he says you will see me? You know, because it can mean three things. There's three possibilities. One is that it could be talking about the eschatological coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, what we call the second coming. You know, we realize, again, as he ascended into the clouds that happen to be above, you will see this same Jesus come again in like manner. And he's coming again. It's a glorious truth that happens to be again out there. But I don't think this is what this passage of Scripture is talking about. And the reason why is because he says the world will not see me. In other words, the unbelievers will not see me. But you will see me. When Jesus comes back, everyone sees him. In fact, even the uh, unsaved, the unbelievers who want nothing to do with Jesus will even ask the mountains and the hills to fall upon them to save them from the wrath of the Lamb. Everyone will see him. You know, and I don't think it's talking about that. Another uh, possibility of what it could be talking about is it could be talking about the coming of what we call the comforter, the helper. In fact, he's just talked about the Holy Spirit of God uh, coming, that, that, that uh, comforter, and it could be that. In fact, the Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Christ, right? They're one in essence, and we realize that, and that's a real possibility. He could be talking about the comforter, but, but Jesus never equates his personhood with the Holy Spirit, right? They're equal in essence, they're one in essence, but there's a distinction in the personhood. And I think, again, the way to take this, the third way to take this is what follows. And that is, again, he's talking about his resurrection. And I think, again, that's the most natural way, the most biblical way to take that in this passage of Scripture, what it's talking about, right? Right? The world will not see me. Right? Herod will not see me. Pilate will not see me. You know, the uh, priests will not see me. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, those who have denied me will not see me. But you, the followers of Jesus Christ, will see me. You know, and it always amazes me when you look at this that Jesus never abandons those who are his in the storm. You know, whether that storm is in our own doing, our own problems, our own sin or not. You know, he's always there. You know, and here's the amazing thing. We, we don't see him with physical eyes, but we see him with spiritual eyes. We recognize he's always with us. You know, we have those eyes of faith. In fact, again, the more that we go through the adversity, the more that we go through the night, the more we look at the promises, the more we look at who he is, the more we recognize his presence in our life. And I think Job is an excellent example of that, right? It really looks like Job is abandoned of God, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. If you looked at a person on the outside and his health has gone immediately away, you know, his family has been destroyed and they're gone. You know, his wife is against him. 
when you look at his wealth has been wiped out. Wouldn't you think beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has abandoned him? In fact, his three friends even come to him and say, Job, you've got a problem with God. You need to make this right. You're abandoned. You are being chastised by the Almighty that happens to be again above. And even when you look at Job, here's the amazing thing. Uh, through, through, through the middle of the book, he becomes jaded. He really does. He says, I want my day in court. This is not fair. And then towards the end of the book, for three chapters, God comes to him and questions Job. He never tells Job why he's going through these, this adversity in his life. But he asks questions about who, Job, who God is. You know, his great creation and what he has done. You know, and at the end of the book, you have Job's response to that. In Job chapter 42, beginning of verse number 2, he says, I know that you can do all things. Speaking of God, he's speaking to God. I can know you have did to, can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In other words, this is your purpose. And then he speaks of himself. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge, right? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known. And listen to what he says next. He says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He says, you know, and think of it, because God is spirit. It's not that he's seeing God, but he's seeing with the eyes of faith. And isn't it amazing? Because our God never abandons us. He never again leaves us on our own. He never leaves us as orphans. Even when we're going through the night, even when we're going through these trials that happen to be again in our life, because of that, again, what will happen through that night is a greater knowing, a greater knowledge, again, of this Lord Jesus Christ that comes in our life. And that's the second promise I really want to concentrate on. And that is, again, God not only comes, uh, uh, never deserts us, he's always with us, even in the greatest trials of our life, even when it feels like no one really cares. Our God is there. Our Christ is there. But the second thing is through all of these, you know, our God, uh, Jesus Christ has orchestrated this for a greater knowing of Jesus Christ. And look at how, how, how it's worded here in verses 19 and 20. He says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. You know, we just said, again, how amazing it is that uh, we have this greater knowledge of Christ, you know, as we go through these trials that happen to be in our life. But well, let me ask a question. How do we have a greater knowledge of Jesus Christ? How do we have a greater seeing of Jesus Christ? Because we've all heard testimonies of that, right? Somebody will stand up and they've gone through uh, tremendous trials that happen to be in their life, tremendous heartache that happen to be in their life, and they'll stand up and they'll say, I don't wish my worst enemy would go through the things that I went through, but I hope, I hope all of you would gain the same knowledge that I have gained of my Lord and Savior through these trials. And I can, I can honestly say I am thankful for for the trials that happen to be in my life because of what they have shown along with the word of God of who my Jesus happens to be.
You know, have you ever heard of testimonies like that? There's a plethora of them. They're all over Christianity. You know, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are we seeing about Jesus? You know, what, what, what's, what's he causing us to really focus on? You know, because there's really two promises that happen to be in this passage of Scripture, and I believe they both dovetail together. And the first one, again, tells us that Jesus going away at this time is for the eternal benefit of the disciples and the eternal benefit of us. You know, and he couldn't imagine how, how fearful they were, how disturbed they were of all this. And then he says this in verse number 19. He says, because I live, you also will Live. It's one of the most stunning truths. In fact, the most stunning truth in all of redemptive history, isn't it? You know, and we realize the meaning that happens speaking of it. And it's one of the most stunning truths. And think of it because the disciples couldn't think of a greater living than living with Jesus right now. And he is going away and he says, no, there's a greater living coming. There's an eternal living coming. That happens to begin in our life. And I think one of the most encouraging, in fact, I know one of the most encouraging messages, one of the most encouraging promises that happen to be in the Word of God is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think there's more encouragement in that promise than any other promises that happen to be in the Word of God. You know, we just don't think about it. We just don't meditate upon it. You know, think about it. It's easy right now. You know, if I was to ask this question, I think everybody would get it right. But if I was to ask you in the middle of a week, you might have a different answer. And it's this. What is the greatest need in your life? What's the greatest need? What's the greatest need that you have tonight? And is it met in Jesus Christ? Now, think about it. If I asked you in the middle of the week, here you are in the darkness, here you are in the struggles, here you are with that weight that happens to be upon you, and you say, I need a husband who loves me, who really supports me, who really, again, comes alongside and really cares for me. I need that spiritual leader that speaks of Jesus in my life. You know, I need a wife who supports me, you know, to help me. You know, when I'm down, when I'm discouraged, that will help me and point me to Jesus and really encourage my heart. I need parents who really get me and my parents don't get me. I need a boss who realizes, you know, I can't live on this income. I really need a raise. The bills are piling up. I just can't go on. I need the doctors to come in. I'm in so much pain and I need this operation. I mean, what would you say is your greatest need? I don't know whoever taught, uh, taught me this principle, but they, they taught it in the Word of God. And it's basically the, this uh, rule. And it happens to be, again, um, let me state it right here when I find it, the 10,000-year rule. You know what the 10,000-year rule is? 10,000-year rule is this. Will it be a big deal in 10,000 years from now? That's when you find out What's your greatest need, right? Here, here, I'm having a little conflict over here. Here, I'm having a little suffering over here. Here, I'm having a little trial. Ah, I need, I need, I need. And let me ask you, how will I view what I'm going through 10,000 years from now? Because I can guarantee you beyond a shadow of a doubt, in 10,000 years, you'll say, I had one need back then. And guess what it was? Because he lives, here it is. I will live. Isn't it true? And let me, let me say, when you start to concentrate on that in the midst of this fallen world, when life comes upon you, it really strengthens you. 
Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he tells them not to lose heart. Don't lose heart. I know all these things are caving in on you. And then he gives this truth for this light. Momentary affliction. Do you feel that in life? What you're going through is light and momentary. And in 10,000 years, all of us will say this. No matter, again, if we live the most horrendous life that has ever been lived, we will say this in 10,000 years. It was light and momentary. And why? Because I've been living this life for 10,000 years. And it says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Right? It's preparing us. And think of it. It's the, it's the greatest pro promise, I think, in the word of God, isn't it? Because he lives, right? Because I live, Jesus says, you will live also. Can you think of anything greater? And it's amazing because the more that we concentrate on this, the more that we have a fuller confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, the more that we have this greater knowledge of what he has really done in our lives you know, and, and, and I think of that often because I think, you know, how could the disciples, think about it, how could the disciples ever get a fuller knowledge of the Lord Jesus? I mean, they saw him walk on water. They saw him still storms with word. They saw him all of a sudden create, you know, bread. Here, here's five little loaves. And when they're little loaves, they're little loaves and two little fishes. And he, and he sees them uh, feed 5,000 men plus women and children. You know, he sees them raise the dead. You know, how could they ever have a greater knowledge of Christ? And the answer is simple, isn't it? They would have a greater knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and here it is, resurrection. You know, and you can see this in verse number 20. He says, in that day, in that day, right? I am going away, but I will come to you. And then he says, in that day, you will know. You hear that? That I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. And when he says these words, right, I am in the Father, there is no doubt beyond a shadow of a doubt. We knew that Jesus was God's emissary. We knew something about his divinity, but he is truly the divine. He is truly the God-man. It's even how the gospel starts out. You, you know, in the first verse of this gospel, it says, in the beginning was the word. In other words, in the beginning was the Christ. Right? In the beginning was a Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they realize, you know, uh, we've always known this. We've always known this. We've always known this, but there's a greater knowing. There's a greater confidence that happens to be there. We call it spiritual illumination. So often we can hear truth. So often some people can explain truth, and we can comprehend truth. But all of a sudden, we see the significance of this truth. All of a sudden, we see the beauty. All of a sudden, we see the glory of Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, we realize to the nth degree of what he has truly purchased for us. And there's no way, there's no way that we could ever be taken out of the presence of Christ. You know, it's called spiritual illumination. And God uses our trials many times to press us to have this greater knowing of Jesus Christ, along with this revelation that he's given us. 
And he also says, again, along with, again, that I am in the Father, you, he says this, you, and you in me, and I in you. And what does he mean by that? And it's basically our relationship with, with Jesus, right? Here we are, and the moment that we believe, the moment, again, that we're born again, the moment we come to Christ, we're baptized into this body of Christ. In other words, my total identification forevermore is that I am in Christ, and he is in me, the hope of glory. When God sees me, he sees the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. When God sees me, he sees every sin that I ever have done has been blotted out because of his perfect sacrifice on the cross. I have forevermore this perfection. And we cannot imagine how the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ caused lights to go on in these men. All their thoughts about Jesus became so much clearer. All of their misrepresentations were suddenly vanquished. All of their false expectations were smashed with greater expectations of who Jesus is. And isn't our Jesus amazing? That he can actually take the most painful moments of our lives and make himself more real. He's always been there. He's always been there. But the only way he can make himself more real in our lives is to know who he is and what he has promised. And I wonder, as we go through this difficult many times for a lot of people, and we all have trials, even when they're good, even when it's a good season, I wonder how many promises can we rehearse can we encourage our hearts as far as the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? Here's two. He's always with us, and he will be in the midst of our trials, so much so that we know him. Isn't our Jesus amazing? Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you, even as we look at this passage of Scripture these precious promises that happen to be in the Word. Lord, what Christ came to do. So often we think we're living life. But Lord, we realize the greatest living that we will ever do, no matter what age we are at, is still in the future when we behold Christ, when we are before Him. And yet at the same time, Lord, we recognize our ever-present Christ is ever with us. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you for the comfort that these promises give us. Lord, just like my sister gave me that promise so many years ago, and it strengthened my heart. Lord, these promises that come from you, come from holy Jesus, give us a greater assurance, a greater confidence, a greater joy, a greater love in Jesus Christ. Just help us, Lord, to remember them, Help us to rehearse them in our minds and in our hearts, especially during those nights, Lord, that we might know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the day will dawn. We thank you that you have ordained one and you have ordained the other. Just be with us now as we go to our song service. We ask these things in Christ's name.